this week on Pointing the Way with Pastor Shad Smith. Pointing the Way, a ministry of the Northside Baptist Church in Dallas, Georgia. We pray you will find direction for living as we look into the Word of God today. I've entitled the message this morning, Christian, Consider Yourself Warned. This wonderful Bible that you and I have been given, this Bible teaches us that once we are saved, we are eternally saved. We are saved forever. That's a glorious, glorious promise in the Scripture. If you've truly been born again, you don't have to worry about going to hell anymore. Y'all believe that? Say amen if you do. I believe eternal life is just what it says, eternal life. However, there are some people who try to take advantage of eternal life. They try to take advantage of eternal security And they think that because salvation is eternal, that it doesn't matter how you live after you get saved. Well, that's the matter that's before us in these verses this morning. Before you leave today, the writer of Hebrews will have given you and I a warning about this false idea that a Christian can sin and somehow get by with it because they've been saved. There's two things the 10th chapter, verses 26 through 31, give us concerning this matter. It's a very serious matter for children of God. In these first four verses, we see what I call the believer's caution. The believer's caution. Verse number 26 begins the fourth of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. We talked about those early on. There's five passages in the book of Hebrews that are called warning passages. This is the fourth one of those. This book of Hebrews is written to new believers. Jews that converted to faith in Christ, became Christians, and they know the Lord, but they're not exactly where they need to be in their Christian life. There's no reason for us to believe that these Jews weren't serious when they came to Christ. They were serious about that. But it seems as you read the book of Hebrews that once they got saved, what they did not take serious was the Christian life. They're very serious about needing a Savior, but they did not take the Christian life serious. What, what brings us to that conclusion? Well, all these warnings. All the things that have to be said to them bring us to the conclusion that If they really got saved, they weren't taking the Christian life very seriously. If you go all the way back to chapter 2, that's where the first warning passage came. And in that first warning, they were warned about drifting away from the Word of God. In other words, what they were doing is they were picking and choosing what parts of the Bible they wanted. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is a feast, but it's not a buffet. You don't just go through and say, I'll have a little bit of this, but I don't have any of that. No, it's it's all or nothing, ladies and gentlemen. And they were kind of just picking and choosing what parts of the Bible that they wanted to obey. 
And I want to tell you, folks, God takes offense when his children hear about half of what he says. God takes offense to that. So he sends a warning. The second warning was given in chapters 3 and 4. They started doubting the Word of God. And what he meant there when he told us they doubted the Word of God is they were trying to live their life without placing their trust in the Word of God. They worried about things they didn't need to. They weren't appropriating promises that they needed to. God wanted to grow their faith, but uh, they wouldn't depend on His Word for their daily provision. They remind me of the people that live today that say, I trust Jesus uh, for eternity. But then they'll whine and they'll worry and they'll complain about how they're not going to make it to payday. Now, how are you going to trust Jesus with eternity if you can't trust Him to Friday? That's where they were. They were doubting the Word of God. And I want you to know God, again, takes offense when His children refuse to believe what He has said. He's never lied one time. We have no reason to doubt a single word He said. The third warning came in chapters 5 and 6. And the warning there was about spiritual laziness. They just got lazy. The writer of Hebrews tells them, he said, we've come to a place now in this book of Hebrews where I ought to be uh, really seeing some maturity in your life. In fact, he says, y'all ought to be able to take this same stuff and teach it, but because you've got so dull of hearing, lazy in your listening, he said that you hadn't learned anything. You're still there drinking the milk of the Word, and you ought to be eating solid food now. What he was saying, and really in a nice way, was you're just a bunch of spiritual babies that need to grow up. <laughs> they all look at me and smile. That's what he was saying to me. Sometimes that's, that's the truth in a congregation. You'll have some people, they just, uh, they just are like spiritual babies. But the digression that they made was very, very easy to see. I mean, the first warning that they were given, picking and choosing, what you wanted to obey, and then the, the part that you did pick, you doubted it. And then pretty soon, you got spiritually lazy, you didn't want to hear anything else. It's, it's no wonder that their faith gets weak and they're at a standstill. They've just been on a constant decline. So the preacher in Hebrews has to come back along and challenge them the way he challenged us last week in verse 25. Look at verse 25. No wonder he has to say verse 25 to them. He challenges them about not forsaking the assembling of themselves together. They're already in a steady decline. It's no wonder that they don't even take church attendance serious anymore. So here are saved people. They just don't care about living for the Lord and following Christ on a day-to-day basis. They just want to get out of hell and go to heaven one day. I'd say that probably there's a lot of believers today that are right here where these Hebrews were. Now that the pressure is off, that they've trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, and they know that they're eternally secure, now we can just relax and kind of get complacent and live any way we want to live. That's when the warning passages start coming their way. And God says, no, you can't sin, live any way you want to, and get by. With it. We come to the fourth of the fifth warning. This warning gets more intense because beginning in verse number 26, he tells them that they have started to willfully disobey God. Now that's the context of this word of caution. 
Listen to verse 26. For if we, you see there, he includes himself, the writer of Hebrews. If we, he's talking about believers, if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. Now this is one of those passages in the scripture that's a, that can be a difficult passage to understand. Let me just say that when you come to a, a place in the Bible that is difficult to understand, a good principle of hermeneutics, and that's study principles, is to take and try to interpret that with what you do understand, with other simpler principles. But we know it's been taught plainly that you can't lose your salvation. So, so the Scripture can't be talking about that right here. What the writer of Hebrews is saying is that when he says there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, he is talking about the power of the cross to give you victory over the practice of sin. You see, ladies and gentlemen, when you came to faith in Christ, when you came to the cross and gave your life to Christ, several things happened in that transaction. Number one, God removed the penalty of your sin. You get saved, there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That means you don't have to die and go to hell anymore. But I'm going to tell you something else you got at Calvary. You got more than maybe you were expecting. You not only got the penalty of sin removed from you, but you are daily getting the power of sin removed from off your life. One of these days we're going to be out of here and we're going to get the presence of sin out of our lives. Just going to go to a place where there will be no more sin. You've already had the penalty of sin removed. That's hell. But now, daily, we're getting victory over the power of sin. That's called sanctification. That's where God gives you and enables you to say no to things that used to, you said yes to. You remember when uh, sin was just so easy to commit. I had a preacher friend that used to get up and he would say, he'd be preaching about sanctification. He'd say, church, I want you to know that now that I'm saved, I drink all I want to. Everybody had gasped. He said, but you know what? When I got saved, God changed my want to. Gave him the power to say no to the bottle. You see, when you get saved, not only do you get delivered from the penalty of sin, but you start getting delivered from the power of sin. God begins to give you the ability, the power to say no to the things that you had no choice about, you just found yourself constantly saying yes, 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 yes to sin. But what he says now is now that you're saved, sin doesn't lord over you. Sin doesn't have dominion over you. That's the devil and sin. His temptation. He has been disarmed at Calvary. He holds no authority over your life anymore. Sin no longer has dominion over the child of God. The cross has taken that away. But verse 26 says, if you willfully sin, you forfeit God's power that He has given you to have victory over sin. God has put a power within you to say no to sin. So the Bible says, if you willfully sin anyway, then at that point there's nothing else God can do to help you. If you choose, after he's already given you the power to say no to it, if you choose to say yes anyway, there's nothing else God can do for you. Well, let me illustrate that. Suppose for a second that you're driving along in your car this afternoon, and on your dashboard of your car, 
one of those little indicator lights pops up. And, and let's suppose that the light pops up, it's a couple of lights, the oil pressure light and the temperature light. And those lights pop on and they flash and they stay on. Those lights are there to let you know that something's wrong with the oil and the engine probably don't have any oil in it. And your car, as a result, is getting too hot because of the friction in the engine. There's a couple of things you can do. You can pull over and pay attention and take care of what the warning has told you. Or you can drive along. I hope you got AAA if you continue to. You're going to need it. You can drive along and you can ignore the warning. But if you willfully drive along and ignore the warning, you don't have anybody but yourself to blame when you're on the side of the road with a blown engine. You didn't heed the warning. You follow what I'm saying? Now listen to me. Do you know what it's like to be tempted by the devil to sin? And the Holy Spirit, when you're tempted, He sounds an alarm of sorts in your mind. And the conscience is that alarm. And the conscience tells you, don't do that. That's wrong. That is God's built-in mechanism in the life of the believer to help you have victory over sin. Now watch this. That warning was made possible by the cross of the Lord Jesus. Okay? Now if you turn a deaf ear to the alarm, if you go on and sin anyway, then there's nothing else that God can do to help you. There is no more sacrifice for sin. There is the, the power of the cross was given to you to have victory over that sin. But you just ignored the power of the cross in your life. Now watch what happens in verse 27. If you sin willfully when God's telling you don't do it, and you do it anyway, here's what you have to look forward to. He says, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. The judgment there in verse 27 is not hell. It is not the lost person's judgment. The fiery indignation is not talking about hell. This verse is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. You say, how in the world, preacher? Now, that can't be the judgment seat of Christ. I've always heard that the judgment seat of Christ was going to be the sweet time when we met Jesus. Well, you've heard wrong about the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is not some whimsical fairy tale experience where you cartwheel down the streets of gold and say, Hello, Lord. No, ladies and gentlemen, when every believer meets Christ, God is not going to just look at you and just kind of wink at everything you did after you got saved. Friend, the Lord isn't going to disown you because you sinned after you got saved. Not at all. But I tell you what He is going to do. The Bible says in verse 27, He is going to look at you with fire in His eyes. With fiery indignation. How serious is it going to be? Well, it tells us he's going to look at you the same way that he's going to look at his adversaries. He's going to, he's going to, any of y'all ever have a daddy or something growing up or a mama that, I mean, you thought the way they looked at you that they could kill you. 
with them. I mean, they didn't because they were your mom and your daddy. But you thought, they could kill me the way they're looking at me right now. He's going to look at us with the same indignation, and he is going to hold us accountable for why we willfully sinned after he told us not to, after he gave us the Holy Spirit to sound the alarm. I won't fear that I'm going to hell from the judgment seat of Christ. That was said 2,000 years ago at the cross. But I will look into the Savior's eyes and I will give answer to certain questions. I believe on that day I'll answer the questions like this. Why didn't you witness to the lost? Why didn't you pray more and read your Bible more? Why didn't you serve me the way I commanded you to serve me? Why did you leave unconfessed sin in your life? Why did you not heed the warnings of Scripture concerning the believer's judgment day? And you and I are going to answer as children of God for those things. We're not going to face the wrath of God and hell over sin. We're just going to answer for how we live as God's children. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul describes the judgment seat of Christ. Listen to me. Paul said, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. Do you hear that word concerning the judgment seat of Christ? The terror of the Lord. Knowing that is going to be a terrifying moment. He said, we persuade men. Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, a group, another group of believers that had chosen to be saved, but wanted to kind of live the way they wanted to in the Christian life. And Paul tries to persuade them to prepare themselves for this day of accountability because he was cautioning them that this was going to be the most serious, the most terrifying time of the Christian's life. You've heard me say before that my job as your pastor, as your preacher, is to help you get ready to meet God. That's why I preach the Word of God to you. That's why I try to encourage you to be faithful. That's why if you're missing or uh, MIA for a few weeks, I'll call you. I'm not mad at you. I, I'm, just, I'm just trying to help you stay ready because you can meet Him today. Like the writer of Hebrews, I'm trying to caution you about the way you live because God is going to hold me, you, every one of us accountable for how we live the Christian life. And at the judgment seat of Christ, He is going to purge the deeds of our Christian life. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, 14, 15 says that every man's work shall be tried so as by fire. And the fire is going to reveal what every man's work is. In other words, God's got a fire of testing. Not hellfire. He's not going to throw you into hellfire at the judgment seat. He's going to take the works of your life. The sum of what you did as a Christian, and he has a purging fire. He's going to take those works, and he's going to lay those works in his purging fire. Those things that were done for God's glory, those things that were done in obedience to Christ, those things are going to stand the test of fire. But Jesus talked about that day, and he said, there's a lot of folks going to come with a truckload of hay, wood, hay, and stubble. Right there, and it's going to burn up, and there's not going to be anything left. Well, why is it important for anything to be left if I'm, just, I, I'm already in heaven, preacher? I mean, why is it all that important? Well, you can lose your heavenly reward. Now, I didn't say you would lose heaven. You can lose your heavenly reward. Some people will go to heaven empty-handed. 
They will go to heaven with nothing to give back to the Lord. They will have earned no reward in their Christian life. Oh, they're in heaven. They're saved as by fire, Scripture says. But they have nothing to show for, no reward at all, because they lived a lousy Christian life. Verse number 28, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy. In the Old Testament, if you violated God's law, God, God was very, very serious. He didn't have mercy on law breaking. For, for example, do you know one of the laws in the Old Testament said if, if you had a rebellious son, that he could be stoned to death? That's pretty serious, isn't it? Why was God's punishment so severe in the Old Testament? Because God's holy. This punishment was so severe in the Old Testament to show us that God takes sin serious. God did take sin serious. Now, I know we don't live under the Old Testament law anymore. We don't live back there in the Old Testament. Somebody say, thank God. Thank God for patience and grace in the day that you and I live in. We don't live under the old system of law. But what the writer of Hebrews is showing us in verse 28 and 29 is that even though we don't live under the same system, God is no less holy. God is no less serious about sin than He used to be. And so verse 29 warns us. He says, if, the, if God punished lawbreakers like that immediately in the Old Testament. He says in verse 29, How much sorer punishment suppose ye? Shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under foot the Son of God, who hath counted the blood of the covenant, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace? What God is saying in verse 29 is God saying, My kids know better. My children know better than to act like that. And if God dealt harshly with people in the Old Testament, many of whom didn't know better, how much more is God going to deal with those in the New Testament that belong to Him that do know better? Did God deal seriously with His children? Sure He did. Did He throw them away as children? No. You remember when the Israelites came out of Egypt? They were set free from, from slavery. But they began to willfully sin, didn't they? Did God disown them? No. God chastened them. What happened to them? A whole generation of them died in the wilderness. An entire generation of them died out there in the wilderness, never got to see Israel. How are you and I different than them? We know better. You've got something they didn't have. You got two things for sure that they didn't have. You have a complete copy of the Word of God preserved. Whether you read it or not, you've got a complete copy. And number two, there's no excuse to say you don't understand it because the teacher, if you're saved, lives on the inside of you. All you got to do is read it, ask the teacher to show you what it means, and then just obey. You've got everything. You've got something they didn't have. You and I have the Spirit of God and the Word of God that teach us and lead us to do those things that glorify God and teach us and lead us to abstain from those things that do not glorify God. We know that. And so the writer of Hebrews shows us what we really are when we get saved and then live a willfully sinful life. He says, first of all, you have trodden, verse 29, you have trodden underfoot the Son of God. You know what he means? Trodden underfoot, the Son of God, if Jesus is under your feet, what does that mean? 
It means you started treating like Jesus, you started treating Jesus like dirt. That's what he means. He came from heaven to earth, he died to save you, and you don't want to obey his word. You're treating him like dirt. Look at what else he said. He said, you counted the blood of the the covenant an unholy thing. He says, you've been saved, but then you start to live like a lost person again. He says, you have said, basically said to God, I don't care that Jesus had to shed his blood for my sin. I don't care. And then he says, you've done despite under the spirit of grace. The spirit. Talk about the spirit. What have you done to despite the spirit of God? When you willfully sin... The backslider's life tells the Spirit of God, I know you're in there. I know you're telling me what not to do and telling me what I need to do, but I'm going to do what I want to, and you're just along for the ride. You're going to have to endure. You're just going to have to endure it, Spirit, because I'm going to do what I want to do. Ladies and gentlemen, a born-again Christian lives in open sin. We ridicule everything Jesus has done for us. I'm trying to tell you today, it matters how you live after you get saved. It matters. Your works don't save you. No, they don't. But after you get saved, God expects you're going to do what He tells you to do since He has made His Son to suffer like He did on your behalf. The way you and I live is a very serious matter to God. And that's why the writer of Hebrews gives us this word of caution. He's saying if you're living a half-hearted Christian life today, it's not only hurting you, it's hurting Him. It's hurting Him. And for that reason, verse 30 and verse 31 give us the last thing I want to share with you this morning. And that is the believer's consequence. The believer's consequence. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That means when you get saved, you don't have to worry about going to hell anymore. The person that is saved will never worry about going to hell. There is no condemnation. But look at me. There is consequence. There's no condemnation for your sin. There is consequence. Verse 30 says, For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. To the believer that willfully sins, there are two courses of action that God can take in your life. Listen closely to what I'm about to tell you. I'm almost done. The two courses of action God will take in your life, or can take in your life, are number one, discipline, and number two, death. I want you to listen to me. Thank God He's patient. When we sin, the Holy Spirit convicts our heart to get right with God. That's God's patience in doing that. But if we refuse to get right when God says that sin, don't do it, and you do it anyway, you know what God says? God says He will chasten us. The chastening of God is our judgment on this earth. Listen to 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-two. Make a note of this verse in your margin. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-two says, But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. I don't know what form of chastisement God is going to use on you if you're committing sin and not living the way a Christian should live, not obeying Him. I can tell you that I do believe that sometimes God uses different forms of chastisement. He may use one form of chastening on me and a different form on you. 
I mean, didn't you do that with your kids? If you were a good disciplinarian, you learned what it took to get the attention of the kid. The point of discipline, parents, is not to just flip your kids on the rear end. That's not the point of discipline. The root of discipline is disciple, to make them a learner, to teach them. A good disciplinarian will always use the most effective form of chastisement to teach the lesson. Now, I want you to know God knows this morning what it's going to take to get your attention. God knows where to hit you, where it hurts you the most. And if the Holy Spirit convicts you of some sin in your life and you do not respond, then God's going to pull out whatever tool of discipline He chooses to use on you. And He will chasten you to get back in line. Thankfully, when I was a boy and got chastised, I usually got right on back in line because I didn't like chastising. But what about people that refuse to chase me? You whoop them all you want to whoop them, and they still won't get in line. There have been some like that. What about those that God chastens, and they still will not change their life? Well, for that person, God can move to the second course of action. What is the second course? Death. 1 John 5, 16 says, For there is a sin unto death. A sin unto death. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, says that it is possible for God to deliver up to Satan the flesh of a person, that the flesh might be destroyed and the soul might be saved. You want to give yourself over to sin and not listen to God? God may just let the devil destroy your life so that God can take your soul on to heaven. There comes a time in a believer's life where the consequence of his or her sin, when they refuse to respond to chastisement, that God will say, your consequence is now death. Your earthly life is over. You're coming out of earth, you're going to heaven. You think, oh, well, that'd be wonderful. I just live like hell on earth. And then God take me to heaven early. Oh, won't it be wonderful there? I promise you, sister, I promise you, brother, you won't be singing, won't it be wonderful there if God takes you home by way of discipline. It will not be a happy moment when you arrive. You will look into the eyes of the one with fiery indignation that says you're here early because you didn't obey me. Are you following me? There is consequence. There's consequence. If you won't listen, God will end your earthly life. This is a hard text to preach. And I've preached it kind of hard to you today. Why? Because I don't want you to be in the place. Thank you for joining us today. Pointing the Way is a ministry of Northside Baptist Church in Dallas, Georgia. If you would like to contact the ministry, you may write Pointing the Way, 120 Northside Church Road, Dallas, Georgia, 30132. Or visit us on the web at www.northsidedallas.com. Until next time, open God's Word to point the way for direction in your life.